0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. Welcome back everyone to another episode of a dealmaker's DNA. I'm uh, very excited to have a, a great guest with me today. We have Jennifer Fondrevey. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. I just want to give uh, a bit of a background on, on Jennifer. And uh, obviously, we're going to talk a lot about uh, your experiences so will get to know a little more about, uh, about you. But Jennifer is the founder of uh, Day One Ready Consultancy, and she advises forward-thinking business leaders and owners and C-suite executives on how to prepare specifically for the human capital challenges of M&A. Um, so pretty exciting topic that uh, I've seen far too many times go awry. And I'm sure, Jennifer, you've seen even more. Jennifer is also a, an accomplished author, professional speaker, and was a uh, former C-suite marketing executive. And she has written a book called Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions. So Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for letting me have be part of your uh, podcast.
0: So Jennifer, I'd love to you know, obviously get into the topics that you know so well, but I always like starting these uh, discussions and taking a little bit further back and maybe just talk about your early life, what even got you into this. Maybe just tell a bit about your story so we could provide a little bit of context around your life experiences that have led to this situation and, and your experience now.
1: Yeah, you could say it's it's a very circuitous path to M&A. Uh, even my father lapsed that I now am involved in mergers and acquisitions. Career-wise, I started in advertising. But if I really think about how much my dad is invested in what I do now, it comes from having a French father, an American mother. And I think I learned diplomacy skills very early in life. And uh, It just, that really informed, I'd have to say, informed my view of the world. My grandmother lived in France and every summer I'd spend time with her. And I think having had that multicultural, multi-view of the different things that people bring to a company, just informed by my childhood, I think culture has always been a big part of my life and a big part of, I'm sure we'll get into it, a big part of what can, can fall apart is culture. And that can really undermine the success of a merger and acquisition. So I think without even realizing it, because what I'm doing now, I never, ever would have said, oh, I'll be doing that, that I, I didn't even have it as a, a guidepost. It was just a calling, having gone through three multi-billion dollar merger and acquisition experiences. I just felt the need to to find a better way. And so I'm here now. But it's funny you asked that. I really, I think it's it's probably that multicultural view that informed me early on.
0: Well, was there something about the differences you saw in that French culture and, and American culture that was so striking? Like you remember those trips to France and, and what was uh, kind of unique and being like, ah, oh, that's so different to how we respond to these kinds of situations.
1: So you're going to laugh the example that comes to mind. So one summer, I think I probably was nine or ten. And I was staying with friends of my father's who had kids out in a French countryside. I think we were in Normandy. And she brought out a salad spinner to clean lettuce. Now, this would have been in the 70s. And I said to her, oh, I've never seen anything like that. And she, I distinctly remember her going, Jean-Pierre, Jean-Pierre, viens ici. You know, Jennifer has never seen a salad spinner, you know, and, and it was hysterical. because in her mind, Americans always thought they had everything ahead of everyone else. And I remember thinking, I didn't really mean to make everyone so excited, but I'd just never seen a salad spinner. And so it stuck out in my head because I quickly realized there was a perception of Americans of always being smarter, better, faster. You know, there was a stereotype. And it stuck with me forever. And we now have a salad spinner. And I laugh every time I pull it out because I remember that moment of being so astonished at a salad spinner. But it was a great lesson. Very good lesson for
0: me. You know what? As a Canadian, I'm always shocked that you guys don't have uh, milk in bags. I couldn't believe (laughs) it. When I I heard that uh, in the U.S., milk isn't sold in bags, I was just like blown away. I didn't know it was a Canadian thing. (laughs) So it really is interesting. I mean, even if you think of Canada and the U.S. At least from the Indian side, is like you know brother and sister. It's like we're like we're kind of very similar, but there still are cultural differences, even when you, even when you think that there aren't. You know, you just go below the surface, and you'll find very nuanced cultural differences. And I think that applies to businesses as well.
1: Absolutely, and and uh, that story. I'm glad I had that experience because I worked in France from 2005 to 2008. And it was critical to my success that I not only understood the French perception of things, but I had a sensitivity that all cultures come to a discussion, come to a brainstorm, come to a project with that cultural upbringing. And it's funny. We are our stereotypes as much as we <laughs> we claim not to be.
0: So you're, you're your child going back and forth. You're obviously... Pretty normal upbringing, I imagine. I mean, talk about some of your educational background. I mean, you, you started in advertising and marketing. Uh, maybe talk about your early career and being a part of some of these larger transactions as you alluded to. So let's just continue that story.
1: So what's interesting is, and I say this as someone who thinks she's been very intentional and has planned everything uh, in terms of what she wanted to pursue, but I actually uh, went to Thunderbird, American Graduate School of International Management. I wanted to be ambassador to France. That was my lifelong goal as a kid. And Thunderbird was a school that I had wanted to attend to um, since I was eight because of its international relations and focus.
0: A cool name as well.
1: <laughs> it is. It is. And it's, it's still going strong. I am thankful because it, had, it was very multicultural. But the the interesting part of that experience is I had an international advertising class, and in that class you competed. It was one of the first programs called Interad, where you literally had executives come and judge. You, you, we had um, companies that would support different teams. The one uh, the project I had was introducing Reese's peanut butter cups into the UK, um, and if you know. Anything about uh, peanut butter, other than Americans, there are very few countries that think peanut butter is a delicious snack, and so. I don't know that. Uh, oh yeah. Listen and the Brits hate it. So anyway, the reason why I share that is it was after that experience, going through that competition, working with the team, that I just loved advertising and the possibilities of truly capturing a culture and being able to put uh, advertising out there that resonated with the culture, that showed with the culture, was interested. That's why advertising is such a great archive of pop culture. And through that experience, Uh, had a chance to travel the world as well. And over the period of that time, I was in advertising for about 15 years and then moved into marketing and just had an amazing opportunity to really understand companies, culture, branding, everything that a company hopes to represent in the world besides just selling products and services that aspect of it I think really informed my view and it's why again I keep coming back to this but the culture piece has been such a strong thread throughout my career and as I moved up in companies it became that much more
0: important so it's interesting I mean you speak about culture a lot and, and I speak about EQ a lot and I think those things are, are are interconnected and I've been asked many times because I think that one of my greatest skill sets is, is, is my EQ and it's because of the upbringing I had uh, my mother's uh, of an EQ expert, clinical psychologist. How much of a role does EQ play in you know, building a, a company culture? And that's a loaded question because it seems obvious. My second question to you is, does the female slant to that EQ dynamic provide a unique place where Potentially, you know, you have become successful because you've seen it through a different lens, and you become a senior executive in that world. Like, does 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 being a female guide any of those decisions and any of the you know the things that you may see that others don't?
1: So, on the culture piece, I absolutely think it's important, and I, I say that as someone who I wasn't even a realizing how attuned to it I was until going through mergers and acquisitions, and so it was. After those three different experiences, three M&A, that I realized how much a role culture plays and how a company succeeds or doesn't succeed. And in my case, the first company, probably the most well-known would be Navtech, a digital map maker that was acquired by Nokia in 2008 for a little under $9 billion, which at the time was huge, an enormous amount of money. And there, what I would say The distinct difference was Nokia was B2C, selling smartphones essentially to the world, and Navtech was B2B, selling map data to enterprise, to automotive companies, to telecommunications, to enterprise. And the distinct difference of trying to meld a B2B company, which is about client service, to a B2C, which is all about the end user, the consumer, there's a reason why that didn't succeed as well as it should have. Uh, you would have thought at the time it was a brilliant move on Nokia's part to have a map data provider recognizing that phones in the future were going to be about location-based solutions, not just connecting with people over the phone, but connecting with people physically. So I would say that it was after that experience in particular that I realized the power of culture and why the culture aspect within, uh, between Nokia and NAFtech was such a, a big issue I would say and what uh, what I think led to that not being as successful do I think there's more of a female slant you know it's an interesting question
0: I think where yeah, so, so the reason I'm asking you is because I hear all the time these these typical stereotypes right where it's like women have higher EQ and you know I, I think that the stereotypes are stereotypes are some of them based on on truth that's what I want to press I want to see what you think on on whether you found in your working career, the women you've worked with have uh, a higher sense of of EQ and what's happening within the culture of the business, or if that's a misnomer and it's it's, it's very individual-based?
1: What I would say, so first, I've actually, I've had an enormous, I've been enormously lucky in that the men who I have worked for have had a high level of EQ. I'm confident that's why I'm doing your podcast. We must have connected in that way. Because, uh, so I don't think it's exclusive one to the other, where I do think that females, may register higher is the the empathy compassion intuition aspect and there i think that plays a significant role i think that's a natural female trait and that can really inform a culture and how people feel comfortable contributing to a company if you've got a higher level of empathy and compassion and intuition in terms of how a team is feeling what might be holding up a project beyond just the natural obvious obstacles and i think women can have a higher tendency towards that, but I've I've really benefited. I've had a number of excellent male bosses who registered high on that, and it's it's why in the companies I've been able to to really move up. And I think that contributed to to my career success as well.
0: For those who really buy into the the point that EQ, in my opinion, is actually more important than IQ, for someone who who is trying to better themselves, what are some of the tools you think that they can be using to increase their EQ? Because we always hear about how IQ is kind of a static number and EQ is not viewed through that lens. It's something that can be developed over time. Are there tools that one can be using, in your opinion, to get better at that skill set?
1: I think there's really one main tool and it's listening. Those people who I know with really high EQ, it's they're thinking about the other person before themselves. and And that's Really, it's a motivation centered around, I want to understand this other person, and the key to that is listening. Uh, and I think, you know, going back to our, our cultural discussion at the beginning, you know, I think that right or wrong, there is a tendency to think that Americans don't listen. And so I think that I, maybe growing up in the multicultural household that I did, I just always was rooted in listening first to other people, And I really do think that led to my success when I did work abroad because of that tendency and desire to hear the other person first and then formulate what the solution could be together as opposed to, I think there can be, those with the high IQ will look more towards, I am the solution, I can figure this out, here's what we're going to do. And it's not to say that one one way is right or another, but my experience is when people feel heard, and they feel that they're able to contribute to that final solution, they're invested in it. They want it to succeed, versus the other path of here's the plan, this is the strategy, okay, here's your job, here's your job, now let's go and do it. That long-term success, I've rarely seen it succeed long-term when that's the modus operandi. So you know, it's interesting, I, uh, I've probably never talked as much about EQ uh, as I have at this discussion, but really for me, it's about listening. That's the, the tool.
0: This podcast is called The Deal Makers DNA for a very distinct reason. One of my passions is, is the debate between nature and nurture. Uh, and I ask this question of every guest is, is how much of that you know, ability to listen, of having high, high EQ, of being self-aware, like how much of, of someone's innate abilities do you believe come from just the DNA side of it versus the nurture side of it? I err 80-20 nature. So I'm I'm a DNA kind of focused individual. I was born with an outgoing personality. I you know I have all these kind of innate traits, and for sure nature has shaped a huge part of that. But I always like to ask other people what they what what they feel because most people don't err as 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 much on on my side.
1: Oh, it's interesting. I I would agree with you. I I do think. Maybe I'd say for me, it's been a combination. So my father was in international sales at the uh, very beginning of his career. He was cultural attaché. My mother was a fashion model. And what I would say was the most fascinating part of that is she beat it into my head. Don't ever let people judge you by how you look. You need to come to any discussion, smart about the discussion. You want people to understand that you're a smart, intelligent woman first. And that had such a profound influence on how I approach things later on in life because she was right. If you think, well, walking into a room, because she was strikingly beautiful and, and legitimately had the, we would walk into a room together and, and the room would stop. And I ha- had that exposure as a kid, but she made such a point of saying, this is not a power you use to your advantage because what you need to do is make a difference in the world and you're going to make a difference in the world by being smart and coming to a discussion with a point of view and making things happen so i i i would say yeah I th- for me it's been both there that early upbringing then fostered how i approached things that i whether it was my, my career relationships parenting all of those things so i'm, I'm thankful to have had that early tutelage
0: I know this may sound surprising, but I've never walked into a room and had that reaction.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, I can I can say it was exclusive to my mom,
0: uh, but
1: it was fascinating,
0: fascinating. So you're in, you know, a high powered job, and as a C level executive, that sounds like a pretty good gig. I mean, why why make such a radical change? Talk about that process of deciding to you know leave that corporate life behind and. And venture on your own?
1: You know, if I'd really, and I've, I've seen this repeatedly with entrepreneurs, if I knew what I was getting into when I made the decision to do it, I might not have done it because I had, I had a great corporate career. I was successful in my corporate career. My track was to continue to be a chief marketing officer. I had reached a, a C-suite level. But after going through three different merger and acquisition experiences, where I kept experiencing the same thing, right? The vision wasn't clear. People lost faith in their skill set. The success was there. I could feel it, but through lack of having a clear, coherent strategy defined at the beginning, things just went off the rails. And it, and it happened three times. And I really feel that it was at that third one that I thought, there's gotta be a better way through M&A. And I had just gotten tired of saying that and thought, I'm not seeing a better way through M&A, so I've got to contribute to what a better way through M&A looks like. And at that time, all I had planned to do was write the book. Uh, I wanted to write a survivor's handbook. I'd gone through it three times. I'd seen that a big part of the failure if you will, was because people didn't have transparency. They didn't know what to expect. And as you know, there's so much confidentiality. There's so much, we can't say this, we don't. And and oftentimes it's not even that people can't say it. They just don't know what's going to happen. And as a result, that lack of transparency undermines the potential success because people are trying to figure out, do I still have a job? Where's this going? How can I contribute? And I felt that I had not only a story to tell, but in interviewing 60 different executives. And I interviewed executives, CEO, CFO, HR leaders, middle managers, I wanted it to be multiple points of view. And everyone said consistently, this is the part of M&A that people don't talk about. The emotional part, the roller coaster ride that you embark on from the moment the deal starts to go into motion. And even if the deal doesn't happen, it changes a company forever. It changes that company's narrative and and that's what I focused on, the fact that a company, even if the MA doesn't go through, the trajectory of that company has changed forever, and it changes the story of the people within it. And for me, maybe well, since we've been talking so much about upbringing, it was don't just talk about the problem, be a part of the solution. And that is really what led me to do what I do today. And thank God for a very patient partner, because my husband was enormously supportive, but it's it's a big discussion. there was a lot of wine had <laughs> over the course of this me deciding to walk away from a corporate career and say, "I'm writing a book, and I, if to really get a book in the hands of the people who need it, you can't just write the book and put it out there and hope for the best. You've got to you've got to build a platform. You need to get out there. and uh, for me, a big part of that was to launch my consultancy, Day One Ready, uh, because the book wouldn't have had any impact if I hadn't done that. And I'd love to get credit for that. I get no credit. I, In interviewing the CEOs and CFOs in particular, they would always say, this is a really important book that you're writing. How do you plan to get it to, out to people? And at that time, my answer was glibly, well, do you know how hard it is to write a book? I was just focused on getting the book done. I was still interviewing for marketing, marketing executive roles, but they were right. And once I really wrapped my head around it, I thought I can't write this book and not do more around it. That essentially came to pass in 2017. It was really, that was kind of the defining year for me. And then in 2018, that summer, Excuse me, that spring, uh, I had an article in Harvard Business Review that went viral. I, you know, I think we use viral rather glibly, but it just it it took off, and the reaction to that article had convinced me that I was onto to something It's um, avoid the us versus them dynamic once uh, a merger and acquisition goes through. how to avoid the us versus them dynamic before it ruins the company and that had a lot of people start to talk to me about, huh, human capital, that's an important aspect of mergers and acquisitions. Talk to me more. How how can we solve for
0: this? You know, it's interesting. I read that article and I have some notes written down, which I rarely do, to be honest with you. I usually just totally off the cuff. And one of the exact things that I have written down is us versus them. I wanted to really dig a little bit deeper into that concept. So talk to me a little bit about what that really means, because I think it's super obvious by just the statement itself. But how does that manifest in ways that you just wouldn't expect it to? Well,
1: and that's the interesting thing. Everyone is prepared for the us versus them when two companies come together, my company versus your company. So that's the, that's the, the ingoing, you're ready for that, you, you, know, you might bring in another consultancy, you're, you're planning around that. What became clear to me in the research that I did is there it manifests in three ways. First, there's that one, us versus them, the two companies. But then there's frontline versus senior management. And that was surprising, but it was consistent. Again, I did 60 interviews and that came up every time. Senior managers are surprised that the frontline isn't as excited about the deal as they are. But the senior management has lived, more often than not, they've lived with that deal for a while. They've months and months of due diligence, could be even years of having discussed it. So suddenly, frontline will feel blindsided and trust dissolves almost instantaneously because now a frontline leader, the feeling is, and this is what I go into in the article, is... We've helped build this company. We've been on the front lines and yet had no involvement, no input on this decision. And so that can really tear a company apart. And that's what I emphasize is that's within the company culture.
0: But how, how do you avoid that? I mean, given that, that confidentiality, given the fact that like, I know in the deals that we do, it's just like, you, you know, you bring certain people into the tent, right? And you know, how do you possibly avoid that feeling because I totally agree with you. What I'm what I'm always fascinated by is, you know, a, a deal gets announced, the press release comes out, and almost always they talk about the synergies. And the street loves that, the executives love that, and the frontline workers saying, okay, well, I'm a synergy. Like, 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 does that mean I'm gone? Does that like what does this all mean for me? And they don't understand how negative that press release is probably viewed by the frontline worker.
1: Oh yeah, well, particularly followed by synergies, and you know, part of our plan is to reduce redundancies. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, walk around knowing that you're a redundancy is uh, is hard, particularly if you've been a critical part of building up that company. So, you know, avoiding it. So, what I did find, and uh, and to your point, you just referenced it, that bringing people under the tent wherever possible, as actively as possible, because the other aspect too is. You will have frontline leaders who will say to you afterwards, I have no idea how you thought this business strategy was going to work because it's not informed by the people who actually do the work. The people closest to the work need to have input. And I think my experience, uh, and again, the research proved it out, a lot of the CEOs said my, my greatest lesson learned was involving the people who do the work sooner in the process would have made us smarter. And this is not to say that your senior management isn't aware, but they're not doing the actual work. They're in senior management roles. So they, that lack of input on the strategy can really undermine it. And your frontline leaders aren't invested in where you're going to the point we had before. They weren't part of the strategy discussion. Um, the third us versus them is who stays versus who goes. The people who stay within a company are often feeling as though they got the bum end of the deal. Because now they're typically, they're doing the job of four people, they're having to constantly reprove or explain to the the other company what their role is. So they can often feel frustrated and as though the people who were lucky were the ones who left. Yet the ones who leave are wondering, well, why do I have to go when my job's important, when the, the job I, I had still is there, but you've got that us versus them dynamic happening where those who stay feel that the ones who leave get the better end of the deal and the ones who leave think those who are still in the company are getting the better end of the deal and so it's it's a very fascinating dynamic uh, to that extent as well and that one it's hard to avoid because going back to the earlier comment so much of the promotion of a merger and acquisition to the street is the efficiencies the elimination of redundancies, and because they're moving at such a, a quick speed, oftentimes you're you're laying off people without really appreciating the impact that that's gonna have on the people who stay.
0: Yeah, and look, I mean, the, the deal-making process is such a, a clear indicator of what's broken because I can tell you, when we're, look, we're investment bankers. So when we're in a deal and we're getting that M&A transaction done, it's literally just lawyers, accountants, executives, investment bankers, and it's just spreadsheets and legal paper and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's like, you kind of lose sight of the fact that like all these numbers, like there are people behind this. And uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on here is because I, I totally think that there should be a culture coach, or someone really managing the human part of the transaction that's in that process to be like hey like this is great but like do you not understand the impact that's going to have and we need to start thinking about it because if you want this transaction to be successful you know post completion you kind of have to care about this
1: well and it's why i called my consultancy day one ready my belief is if you wait until the announcement if you consider day one the day the deal is announced you're dead in the water frankly So for me, my sweet spot is the letter of intent due diligence timeframe, because it's in that timeframe. As I said, whether the deal goes through or not, you've changed the company because it's, it's demonstrated to the market, your employees, if they find out that, okay, maybe we aren't going to be successful on our own. And so for me, the opportunity is in that early stage, the pre-deal announcement stage is when I work with executives. It's about getting their alignment. I'm, I, you've probably had this experience as well where everyone thinks we're in alignment, but then as you dig deep, you realize, well, actually, no, we're not aligned in terms of what the end goal is, what the objectives are, what's the right strategy to get there. And I've been fascinated at how often executives will think everyone's in alignment. And then when you have a a day long summit or a discussion you really reveal where everyone is and that if you don't have those discussions early on it contributes to the i think the i won't say failure but certainly it contributes to the success of not having success early on because you're you're trying to get alignment and you've already announced it if you're not aligned and then you're trying to promote your workforce that this is a great thing for the company it's gonna be really hard to convince people that you are, have a clear strategy because not everyone's saying the same thing. And that's where I see the issues happen time and time again.
0: And you know what, it's, it, I read another one of your articles, and it, it was in relation to COVID-19, but one of the things that really like it stuck out to me was about fear and its role in behavior and how even if you have alignment, I think once someone's emotion changes into, let's just use fear as an example, one of the things you say is like people could start acting totally differently to what you expect them to act and not to judge right i thought that was the really interesting component of that article is that you're saying but people are fearful and and don't judge their behavior because they're in a state of fear so so talk to me about like even when you have that alignment how an emotional change can lead to Again, unforeseen consequences. I know, I know this article was in relation to COVID, but I imagine you see the same thing in, 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 in an M&A process.
1: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That was another epiphany for me as I was doing the interviews was, and consistently everyone said, no one talks about this. An organization goes through stages of grief. It was a grief counselor who actually gave me the best definition. She said, grief is mourning the future that won't be. And that's what happens. When you go through a merger and acquisition, we've all had career dreams, right? Ways that we think about, this is where I'm going. This is how I'm gonna be so successful. You have that in your head. And then all of a sudden, a merger and acquisition can happen to your company. And it just, it dissolves because that future that you had envisioned it starts to disappear and so you go through stages of grief. It's called the change curve, the S curve. Essentially, it's working from denial to acceptance. And I talk about that in my book that you have to be ready for that. And I say to senior executives, you need to be ready for this. Your your workforce isn't going to be ecstatic the day after the announcement's made because they're they're processing what's just happened and the fact that the company that they knew no longer really exists and they're each gonna get to acceptance at different stages. No one gets there at the same rate and you have to plan for that in your strategy development that it's gonna take a while for people to get there. Um, The other thing that I talk about in the book and uh, I would have to say, it's why I say it's a satirical business book because there are 10 personalities that emerge in a merger and acquisition and I wanted to bring that to life that people, when they're afraid, you see a different version of them. Gloves are off. It's why I think the TV show Survivor (laughs) has has endured as long as it has, right? People are fascinated by alliances that disappear if somebody thinks they got to save their hide and the same thing happens. And uh, uh, what I say is, and it took me a long time to get to that point, to say you cannot judge people. Everyone comes to the situation with their own history, their own baggage, their, host, their innermost fears.
0: I want to press you on that don't judge thing, because it's so counterintuitive to me in, in a lot of ways. And my gut tells me that you're probably right. But for me, it's like if I see someone doing something super irrational it's damaging the business and the culture, how the heck am I supposed to not judge? And why wouldn't I judge?
1: Well, and that that message really, and and I say that as somebody who lost a lot of time being disappointed in other people. When I went through my three multi-billion dollar acquisitions, and I should say the, the bigger the billions, the bigger the bloodbath. So when they're big like that, there can be more carnage. And I passed that on as a lesson learned because I wasted time as an executive being dumbfounded by people who I thought I knew behaving very differently throwing people under the bus or or just not staying wedded to the strategy and flipping, in my view. And I realized, largely after doing all the interviews that I did, it's a waste of your time. You're not going to control people. You certainly can't influence them when they're fearful. You can try to help, but you can't assume that they're going to continue to behave the way they always have because fear just fear takes over people, and everyone reacts to fear in different ways. And so my message in that was to say, don't judge them. But I also say, but don't waste your time. You've got to move on. The other aspect of M&A that I applied to COVID is you can find new leaders. Oftentimes, the people who you thought you could count on, they have their own struggles, but you, new leaders can rise up. And that's what I, I highlight is look for those new leaders, the calm, level-headed people because when, when people are grounded, you will have people who are willing to follow them because they're grounded, because they're level-headed, because they're not overreacting. And that was a big lesson that I wanted to highlight in terms of what we see happening with the pandemic and how you can apply that to M&A situations where uncertainty runs rampant. There are opportunities for new leaders to, to rise up. And for me, I always want to end on a hopeful note. So even when I talk about the personalities and there's everyone from the Black Widow to the know-it-all to the dominatrix, my point through bringing those personalities to life was to say, be prepared, this could happen. You're certainly gonna experience one, if not several of these. And I also say, you could become one of these. I make a pointed effort in the book to say, don't become a caricature. Be aware of these because the potential for success is delayed until everyone sees the opportunity in front of you as, a, as an organization, as a workforce.
0: Now you talk about being aware of these. I mean, I preach a lot about the importance of self-awareness. I, I truly believe self-awareness is the key that unlocks potential because if you don't know what you're good at, you're in big yes. trouble. So I'm going to bounce around a little bit. One of the things that, that, that a lot of people don't agree with me on, but I saw you do because I, I read it in one of your articles and you say double down on your strengths. So I've always been fascinated by when people say, like, what are your three weaknesses? Like, who cares? <laughs> you can't sing. You can't dance. But like, I'm being hired for X, Y, and Z. And, and one of the things you did say is double down your strengths. Maybe talk to me about why you say that, because I totally agree with you.
1: It's an underlying thread of the book. And the book is... my. Consulting is for the executives, for the leadership, and then ideally I'll get a chance to work with the workforce. But I wanted the playbook to be for the individual. The way I like to define it is, it's the people who aren't in the room when the deal is made, but who are burdened with the execution. I wanted a playbook for them to bring transparency to it. And so the message that I have throughout the book is you need to know your value. Know what you are good at. Don't be tied to your title, Be smart about what you can contribute. What's your skill set? What's your area of expertise? Because the opportunities in front of you, there may be a job that doesn't even exist yet that you could create that play to your strengths. But if you're too petrified and you aren't aware of what your strengths are, you're gonna have a lot harder time finding what those opportunities are. And you're gonna constantly be holding on to your old title and what you used to be known for as opposed to knowing what you're good at and then finding where are the opportunities. And I've sat, I've seen and again it came up through the the research as well, people created new roles for themselves when they knew what they were good at and they saw gaps. MA, the fascinating thing is there's so many gaps that you can fill, but if you're so wed to the past you won't find them, you won't see them. And people who are successful at really knowing what their value is, they look for the gaps and the opportunities for them to contribute to it. So much of M&A success is about being that bridge, helping both companies figure that way forward. And so that's why I, I emphasize the importance of knowing your, knowing your strengths and where you can contribute value. Do
0: You think people that don't uh, uh, have a lot of self-awareness, and we all know those kinds of people, do you think it's a skill set that can be developed? Or do you think that that's like an innate thing? It's like height, where you, you, you are what you are.
1: I think it can be learned, I'll say, and I won't, I won't reveal too much. A lot of the CEOs who I interviewed said they learned some really hard lessons. And the key theme that came through is they wished they had come to the deal with more humility. They had come to the deal with arrogance. And, and that's it. You and I both know that, right? That's the tendency. You're, you're very confident. That's why the, the deal goes through. Each side is very confident of the role that they play. But what was interesting, and they they almost reveal it as though it was an epiphany that they had afterwards. Had they come to the deal with more humility and appreciation for what the other side brought to the table, it could have helped them get to integration, have that collaboration happen faster. So I think self-awareness can be learned over time, but my experience shows it tends to happen when you've You've hit up against a wall a number of times and there will be those who continue to hit up against the wall. They'll never have that epiphany. I'm thankful that the um, the CEOs were very open and very um, self-critical. They, they shared, they, they learned a lot of lessons. In fact, that's why they contributed to the book. They wanted to make sure that there was a greater chance for success for m in the future. And for them, a big part of it was learning the importance of humility.
0: Is there a uniform kind of playbook that can be used to enhance the success of the, the human side of an M&A transaction? Or when you go in there, is it totally situational on the two different cultures that are at play and you're taking those ingredients and you're creating a new dish every time?
1: Well, and, and it's interesting. I've done a number of webinars, of podcasts, of speaking engagements, and people hold up my book and say, is this the playbook? Should we all follow this? And And I'll say... It's a playbook in that it brings transparency to what happens to people when their future becomes uncertain and m a automatically brings uncertainty. So, but I emphasize, and it's again, I brought this up in that article you referenced before about parallels between what we're seeing happen with the pandemic and m a The most brilliant business case looks great on paper. But no one knows how successful it will be until we see how people behave. And the same thing is with the pandemic. We've got a lot of different recovery strategies, how how this could play out, where things will go. No one knows what will be successful until we see how people behave. So for me, the important aspect of the book and all of these discussions, it's why I gave up my earlier career to go out and speak to the extent that I do is It's about understanding that human behavior is unpredictable. So you can't develop a strategy and say, this is going to be successful for X, Y, and Z, particularly if those people haven't informed on the strategy. So a big aspect of the playbook is just the awareness of, listen, we will go to the extent that we can in developing the strategy and having a long-term view on what will work, but we have to equally be prepared that there are going to be things that we hadn't expected that will happen. And that was repeatedly also uh, feedback that I got during those interviews. You have to expect the unexpected. It's going to happen. But as much as you can plan and have a view, a long-term view of how things can play out, recognizing that we have to see what will happen, my focus always is, and that's why the day one aspect that I say I want to really meet with executives sooner because I prepare them for all potential scenarios. This could play out a lot of different ways and we even do a pre-mortem talk through, what are now that we've made the decision, what are all the ways that this code could go wrong? For me, that's the, the most valuable aspect of a playbook, if you will, is being prepared for worst case scenarios with the hope and expectation that they won't happen, but you're prepared for them. And with, with human beings, you, you can't predict anything, so you've got to be prepared for those.
0: Couldn't agree more. We are predictably unpredictable. One of the main reasons I do this podcast is because there's a lot of young entrepreneurs out there that love learning about how potentially to steer their careers in the right direction by listening to stories of others and in this conversation we've, we've touched on a few points that i think has probably led to you know your success in your career i mean we touched it on self-awareness we touched on humility we touched on eq but if there's young entrepreneurs listening to you right now are there a few kind of key things that you lean on and would would give young people you know some this is some advice that i think you should hold near and dear as you stick handle your own career to drive your own success like are there a few key things that you would point to
1: i'm gonna sound like a broken record but this also comes because i did i i did interview entrepreneurs as well for the book one fascinating piece was how oftentimes an entrepreneur would say i got so focused building The business, just getting the business up and running, I didn't think about culture. I didn't think about the value of culture and having people invested. So it wasn't just my vision that we were working against, but people were invested in it together. And that was, particularly obviously for serial entrepreneurs, a realization where they didn't want to make that mistake the next time. So I think understanding that as you are building your business, because it can feel like you are on a rocket ship, particularly if things start to take off, you need to recognize early on in that process to pause and establish the culture you want your company to have. Because you don't want it to just be about the product or the service or the solution. That culture, that willingness for everybody to come together and work towards it to give them meaning. It's why I think, thankfully, you see so many more mission-driven entrepreneurs having success because of that focus on the on the culture piece. I think the other thing, and entrepreneurs, I, you, you go back to your comment about DNA. I think the most successful entrepreneurs, it's just part of their DNA to be passionate. They're passionate about the idea. They won't let... Naysayers, people who will highlight all the ways it could go wrong, that won't stop them. And you have to have that passion, because you're going to, you're just going to constantly head up against obstacles. But you will find your way through, frankly, with that passion. And if you've created a culture where people are equally invested in that vision with you, those to me are the,
0: are the critical pieces. Jennifer, thank you so much for participating. For people that want to follow your journey and uh, keep track of what you're up to. What's the best way that they can do that? I mean, outside of uh, your book, which we will uh, have a link to, what are other ways that they can follow you?
1: Well, two ways. My my website, you can certainly check out the website, jenniferjfondrevet.com. Honestly, uh, LinkedIn has been a a great platform. I do a lot. The articles that that you read, I share a lot on, on LinkedIn. I find that if you're going to help people succeed in business, it's don't just highlight all the great things about leadership and development, I want to highlight and and bring transparency to some of the, the warts, some of the things that can slow you down in your career to be smart on. A big part of my rabid transparency, I think, is, is kind of my big mission at the moment, uh, brought on by trying to help M&A be more successful. So uh, please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm thrilled by how many people respond and comment and and equally want to help business move forward by talking about the some of the warts, some of the things that can that can undermine business success.
0: Once again, thank you. And for those who are going through a, a, an M and A transaction, uh, either now or in the future, working with an advisor like Jennifer is a, is a, is a very proactive, intelligent tool in deal making process. So I would encourage everyone to uh, to reach out to Jennifer if if that's uh, on the horizon. So. Again, thank you very much. And uh, until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA. Thanks. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.